Good evening, everybody. My name is Francisco Panizza. I'm reader in Latin American politics at the London School of Economics. Um, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce our guest lecture today, the Minister of Finance, Finance of the Government of Chile, Felipe Larraín Bascuñán. Uh, it will take too long to list uh, Minister Larraín uh, academic and professional achievements. Uh, he has a bachelor's degree in economics from the Universidad Católica de Chile, where he is also professor of economics, and a master's degree and a doctorate for Harvard University, where he has been Robert F. Kennedy visiting professor of Latin American studies. Uh, Minister Larraín has combined his academic career with an extensive public life as a consultant of several governments of Latin America um, and of major international organizations like the International Monetary Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the World Bank. The title of his public lecture today is Chile's Path to Development. Minister, welcome to the LSE. Thank you. Well, good afternoon to everybody. Very big pleasure to be here at LSE. I used to be a professor for 30 years of my life before becoming a minister. And uh, I taught economics. I taught macroeconomics. My passion is economics. And my passion is also teaching, writing, doing research. And I tell you frankly, many times I feel more comfortable in front of this kind of audience than in, front, than in finance minister's meetings. But that is something that I would like you not to tell because, you know, I have to meet my colleagues very often. So I would like to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Chile, current state, where we are, a little bit about, uh, you know, some connections with the UK, and um, later I'll be happy to answer questions if you, uh, if you have any things or comments. Uh, let me first start to um, share with you that we are here, uh, I came here with a group of 200 Chilean business people, four members of Congress. We were here for Chile Day. And Chile Day is something that for the first time was celebrated here and happened in, uh, in London before we used to do this in New York. And uh, we have, uh, we're very grateful of the hospitality we had. The Monday, I had the opportunity of a meeting at 10 Downing Street, well, 10 and 11, with my colleague, George Osborne. And uh, we had a reception for the Chilean delegation uh, over there. And we had a private meeting. We could discuss issues of uh, high relevance to, to our countries. And we discussed the, also the European situation, which is in, on our minds. and. Uh, on Tuesday, we had a full day at Mansion House, and the Lord Mayor of uh, the City of London was our host there. And uh, I tell you, it is a very special thing to be able to have not only the 200 Chileans, because it is not a good idea to bring 200 Chileans and speak to ourselves. We also brought 150 people from the UK, mainly, also from Europe, investors, analysts, people who wanted to understand about the Chilean situation. And when I mentioned that we had 
uh, that we had four congressmen, two from the government coalition and two from the opposition. For every Chile day since I have been a minister, I have invited four congressmen, one senator and one representative, or each one from the coalition and the opposition, so we have an adequate representation of our, uh, of our country. So let me, let me um, turn a little bit now to uh, what I had in mind. You, uh, if you recognize uh, this manual or this uh, publication, you're either very old or you're a scholar because this is a 19th century uh, publication, the Investor's Monthly Manual. And over here, Chile, uh, some listings of Chile of December 31, 1894, uh, in the page where uh, the British colonial and foreign stocks are listed. You know, you find there Chilean, it says, before Chinese and after Antigua. And you have a number of notes and bonds, and then you have uh, notes from the railways in Copiapó, Coquimbo, uh, and it says Chilean currency in a way you wouldn't spell it uh, today because it's Chilean with an I instead of an E. So just uh, as, a, as an introduction to say that there is a long-standing tradition of re and a relationship uh, and friendship between these two peoples. Uh, between the people of uh, uh, British people and the Chilean people. And uh, just let me also remind at this stage um, some, something that most of you probably know, that Lord Arthur Thomas Cochrane, a British citizen, went and helped organize the Chilean Navy after our independence. And he was a, he's a national hero. And if you ever go to Valparaíso uh, in Chile, you will be able to visit Lord Cochrane's house which is today converted into a museum. And you can see the house where he lived, which has a very nice view of the port anyway. So uh, let me just give you a general overview. Of course, you know where Chile is. It's, uh, it's in, uh, in South America. It's this long and thin country. And there are a few statistics to start with. We have a population of 17.2 million. That's our 2011 estimate. We have a GDP of $203 billion per capita, almost 12000 at current dollars, at current exchange rates, and at purchasing power parity, it's 15000 Later on, I will compare this to where other countries are. We have a life expectancy at birth of 78.8 years. This is the highest in Latin America. And it is only less than a year from the UK's, uh, which is 79.6, as I understand. We have an adult literacy rate, uh, which is 98.6%. Um, uh, and let me just give you a brief overview of where we stand right now, where we are. We came out of a big um, earthquake. And uh, this uh, is clearly uh, felt here in the growth of the first quarter of 2010, where growth, we are a negative. As you know, we endured a very severe earthquake and tsunami on February 27, 2010. We had the loss of more than 500 lives between the people who died and those who disappeared and who have not been found. Um, and other than that, we suffered uh, very big infrastructure damages. Our estimated cost of the earthquake uh, for the Chilean economy is $30 billion. Out of that is $21 billion is infrastructure losses. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, we had the country with little communication for a, a period of time. Uh, this was about 16% of GDP of our gross domestic product, which is higher in just in economic terms to the cost of the, of the Japanese uh, earthquake. So after this, we've had a very strong recovery of the economy. As you see here, the average growth of the last three quarters of 2010 was 6.4. Then we go to 8.9% of the first three, uh, uh, four months of this year. But of course, that has to do with the fact that we are comparing this with 1.7% growth, which is a very low base, particularly because of the month of March, as you will realize here. March this year is 15.4. We measure this on an annual basis. So we compare one month to the same month of the previous year to avoid any kind of seasonal effects. So 15.4, you're comparing it with minus two. And that's why we have this very strong rate. But look, we're growing between six and a half and seven percent. We are recovering growth. The Chilean economy's growth pace since 98, for to, 98 to 2000, Nine is an average of slightly over three, so we are over six. We have been able to double the Chilean growth rate. And this is based partly on solid consumption growth. After a recession in 2009, we've had very strong recovery of consumption, growing at over 10% right now. And uh, high growth, even higher growth than consumption, which is healthy, of gross fixed capital formation. This is investment, and this investment is was heavily based in machinery and equipment. There is a part of this investment that was just uh, you know, recovering uh, some of the lost um, machinery and equipment at the time of the earthquake. The earthquake destroyed part of the machinery and equipment uh, on the industrial sector in uh, some of the areas of the country. But then you have uh, you know, renewed uh, growth that is not related to the earthquake and not related directly right now to the recession. So growth is around of uh, uh, investment is about 19%. Exports are growing strongly after several, several quarters of negative growth. Remember we have here the negative, quarters, uh, negative growth quarters are those of the recession of 2009 when the world was also in recession and that of the, uh, and those of the start of 2010, particularly the first quarter when we were hit by the earthquake and then the communications in the particular month of March uh, were severely damaged. Then we start recovering, and we've had three quarters of very positive growth of exports. Let me make a, a technical point here. This is not dollars. You know, I'm not just comparing dollars to dollars because there is the price effect. I'm counting. This is the national accounts way of counting exports, which is volume. You know, volume, in volume terms, meaning that there is growth, not just in the prices, because we all know the price of copper has increased very significantly. It's the volume of exports that is growing at this rate. We've had record employment creation, over half a million jobs created in the last, uh, we uh, measure here uh, employment in uh, moving quarters, you know, that's the way it's reported in the in National um, uh, Institute of Statistics. So over a year, if you compare January, March 2011 to January, Mar March 2010, uh, we, uh, the economy had created 487,000 jobs. Then. If you go February, April, you have a little over a year, 13 months, you go over half a million jobs. This is the record number of employment creation. This is growth of employment of over 6% in one year. Let me give you a story of where we are in terms of our public finances. Chile has one of the lowest country risks in the world right now. 
this is the one of the most uh, common measures of country risk, which is the five-year CDS uh, credit fault swaps on basis points. And uh, on this measure, we have a lower country risk than France and Italy, Hungary, Spain, and the lowest country risk in Latin America. We have a higher country risk than the US and Germany. So this is 77 basis points, one of the lowest in the world. Our fiscal deficit in 2010 was 0.4% of GDP. So we were almost had a balanced uh, fiscal accounts. And here, uh, this is compared, well, Sweden had a balanced budget. And in the rest of the countries, you know that there are several countries with fiscal deficits in excess of 10% of GDP. So that makes an important difference for our economy. Our uh, gross debt to uh, GDP ratio is one of the lowest in the world. Um, our gross debt to GDP is about 8%. 8% it compares with uh, countries like Italy with 130%, countries like Greece almost 150, 155% and Japan, which is the world record, uh, which is in excess of 180% of GDP. Our gross debt is only 8%, so we have a very limited uh, debt. But when you compare, if you take out the net assets, because you had a gross debt, you have debts, <laughs> You have assets and you have liabilities. That is your liability and you also have the assets. We have net foreign assets that exceed the public sector, exceed our debt. So we are net foreign creditors vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. So we don't, in net terms, we don't have debt. But we are, we are creditors, we're not debtors. And uh, I looked at other economy, Sweden, uh, which, has, uh, which is uh, more of a creditor in, on net terms than, than Chile is. So, but you know, here Denmark is, is almost at zero, almost the balanced position, and then you have all the countries. So in this scenario where we have all the world looking at the public finance figures as the deficits, as the debt, Chile has a very solid position, and this is being recognized by the market. Let me show you a bit about our foreign sector. Here you have uh, you know, some workers in, in, uh, in a processing plant in Chile. We have 92% of our exports going to uh, economies, uh, countries, trading partners with which we have free trade agreements. So we have you know, 92% of our exports covered by free trade agreements. We have 22 bilateral trade agreements, bilateral regional agreements with 58 trading partners. Our effective import tariff is 1.2%. It's one of the lowest in, in, uh, in the world where there are some few countries which have uh, you know, less than 1%, but there are only a few. And uh, uh, this is based on the fact that we are, you know, uh, have integrated into the world economy by reducing tariffs uh, unilaterally and bilaterally and regionally. It is uh, interesting to see, well, uh, you have probably heard about the, Euro the Uruguay round, which ended the Doha round, and we're in the middle of the Doha round, the Doha round of the WTO never ends. But uh, countries have in this process with several years in which the Doha round does not make a significant progress and there are no prospects of that ending, we have uh, made progress through bilateral trade agreements. This is something that several countries have started to do. Where do we trade? Well, the European Union is an important uh, trading partner for Chile, but interestingly, China is our main trading partner today. China absorbs a quarter of Chilean exports. And this is something quite unique in our region. Our region, uh, if you look at Mexico, for example, 80% of Mexican exports go to the US. In Central America, between 40 and 50%. In South America, 
about 25% of exports go to the U.S. Well, we are, have uh, looked at Asia, and this is something that uh, you don't plan. It just goes according to markets. Chinese use a lot of natural resources. We sell natural resources, and particularly copper, and uh, the Chinese buy a lot of Chilean copper. European Union, 19%, on par with Latin America, you know, another 18%. The U.S. is 10% of our exports. Japan is 10%. And emerging Asia is 13.4%. But if you do this, if you add up the pieces of the Asian nations with, to which we export, you realize that almost half of Chilean exports go to Asia, you know, which is quite unique. If you add up the 24.4 plus the 13 plus the 10, then you are almost at 48% of our exports going to Asia. And this places us in a position um, that is, uh, you know, solid in terms of our, if we were very concentrated in Europe and the U.S. because of the prospects of growth in Europe and the U.S., which are, you know, uh, there are doubts about the recovery in both regions and there are, as you know, significant problems here. Uh, with, the, with the Greek situation, with the Greek problems, uh, then that is something uh, that uh, has, uh, that is, is a strength of our economy. But let me tell you something. If you looked at this same chart 10 years ago, it looked completely different. You would have seen the US and the European Union as the main trading partners 10 years ago. And China would have been probably number 10. 10 years after, China is by far the main trading partner of Chile. What do we sell? Well, we sell a lot of copper, you know that. In uh, 2010, 57% of our exports were copper. If you add up copper and molybdenum, which is uh, produced, um, you know, uh, in many cases as a byproduct of copper, the copper company also produces molybdenum, we have 60%. And then you add up fresh fruit, pulp, uh, salmon and trout, and forestry, and we have a lot of our exports are based on natural resources. And this is one challenge of the Chilean economy. How do we move to the next stage? We are a $15,000 uh, per capita income country and would like to be developed. I'll, I'll go to that point in a, in, in a short while. Uh, one of the, of the things that we're looking at is how can we diversify our export base? This is one of our, it is not, it's probably a good business today if you're in the natural resource um, area. And uh, if you are very heavy on natural resources, there's a lot of demand for natural resources. I happen to be today in the London Metal Exchange this morning. I was in the trading floor at the moment that copper was traded, and I saw that, you know, and I participated. I didn't bid, but, you know, there were some professional guys bidding and offering copper. And, yes, it's very hot to be in the metals. But then you have to be able not only to manage scarcity, but to manage when things are going well, so that it doesn't create a boom that turns into a bust. And this is one of the things that we need to consider. For FDI has been very strong in recent years. Uh, we're pretty much, um, you know, doubled FDI since the mid, in, in the last five years, and uh, foreign direct investment is about uh, $15 billion, you know, was last year, and, and that was kind of the average. Even 2009, which is a year, a year of recession in Chile and in the world, we had uh, about $13 billion of FDI into our economy. In terms of investment promotion and double taxation treaties, we have bilateral investment promotion and investment protection agreements with 49 countries, and we have uh, treaties to avoid double taxation with 28 countries. Let me look briefly at our financial market. Stock market cap is um, 
you know, is pretty high for any standard because it is uh, over 150% of GDP. That's the stock market capitalization. It gives a capitalization close to $350 billion. This happens because the stock market has appreciated, but also because a number of companies have opened, you know, and, and have done IPOs in the market and, and have, you know, going from a family-based company to a... Um, a company that is publicly traded and is subject to all the rulings and requirements of a publicly traded company, uh, including responding to the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission. In terms of the soundness of banks, which is another important aspect and which was heavily tried and tested during the recent crisis, Chile, in this rank uh, uh, carried out by the World Economic Forum, was number five in the world, uh, in the world out of 139 countries that were in, and you have a neighbor here, Ireland, that uh, was number 139, which is a pretty tough task to end, you know, at the very end. Well, Argentina was 123. Belgium, the United States, you know, 111, and Canada was number one, New Zealand two, Australia three, and Chile five. Let me briefly look at institutions. This is one area which is very important if you're looking at a country. And let me look first at the rule of law. I will compare with a very tough uh, standard, which is the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, Chile became the first South American country to uh, uh, become a member of the OECD last year in 2010. Not the first Latin American country, because the first Latin American country was Mexico. So now there are, there are two OECD members out of 34 uh, countries. There are two countries uh, which are from Latin America. There are a number of countries who would like to be a member, but the, those who are 34 members, two from Latin America. And this is mostly a group of developed nations. So it's a tough standard. In terms of rule of law, and this is from the World Bank, the Worldwide Governance Indicators, we are very close to the OECD, slightly below, but significantly higher than the average for Latin America. In terms of political stability, we are 10 points below the OECD and uh, 35 points over Latin America. In voice and accountability, now we are here 15 points or 16 points below the OECD and, and, and some 20 three points over Latin America. In government effectiveness, we're close to OECD and double the index for Latin America. In regulatory quality, we exceed the OECD by three points and we're uh, double the rate, uh, the, double the index for Latin America. In the control of corruption, we are on par with the OECD average and we are double uh, uh, the control of corruption of Latin America, according to these indicators. I am using, and this is something which I would like to stress, I'm using uh, mainly indicators which are not produced by ourselves, by our government, because, you know, I would like to give you, uh, you know, sort of objective uh, view. Of course, I use sometimes national accounts, but that's, you know, standard. Now, when I use the comparisons, I, I use, uh, you know, average. Let me point to two areas where there are big challenges of our economies. First, poverty. Poverty, we had a very significant reduction over the last two decades of our poverty rate. This is a percentage of population living below the poverty line. From 45% in the end of the 80s, well, partly related to the recession of 82-83, which was very strong, the poverty rate has been declining, you know, you know little by little, until, um, but very consistently until 2006, 13.7% of population living below poverty and it increased in 2009, mainly because of the recession that we endured. So this is an area we have 
uh, 2.5 million uh, Chileans living below poverty, and this is a very important, as you will see, uh, goal for our government to go towards the elimination of poverty. Second thing, income distribution, different concept, the relative measure. Well, the Gini coefficient, as you know, the Gini is um, a measure of inequality, is the Global Inequality Index. And this index basically goes from zero to one, zero being total equality. Everybody earns the same income in the country, so it's no difference. One is everybody has no income and one person has all the income, a very, uh, a very peculiar case. Um, what is the situation of Chile? Well, first of all, we live in a region of high inequality. Latin America is not the poorest region in the world, but is the most unequal region in the world. The poorest region in the world is Sub-Saharan Africa, but Sub-Saharan Africa has less inequality than Latin America. Within the Latin America region, we are a little bit above the average of inequality, and this is one area where we need to make progress. What are we doing? Now I'm kind of show you uh, what is the Chilean economy, the short term, and some structural issues. Let me uh, tell you now, I showed you how we are doing in the short term, but then growing at six or six and a half percent, well, it's good, but we need to do better than that. We need to keep that in time. In order to do that, we need to take some actions that will sustain our growth rate in time. Some of these actions are related to, inf to investment. We've done two measures of, uh, I mean, more than this, but I'd like to highlight two measures that uh, were in a, in a tax, in a law uh, passed uh, in 2010, in mid-2010. The first thing is that the corporate tax for reinvested earnings of small and medium-sized business was eliminated. Only for reinvested earnings. If you distribute the earnings, then you pay regular tax, which is right now uh, 20%. It was increased last year. In the middle of the uh, uh, reconstruction, we had to resort to increased taxation, and we increased taxes in corporate tax rate. Now you pay 20%. But if you reinvest the earnings up to a certain amount, then small and medium-sized business pay nothing if you reinvest. So this is a, a, an, invest, an, an incentive for reinvestment. The stamp credit tax, the stamp tax, El impuesto de timbres y estampillas was uh, uh, reduced from 1.2% to 0.6%. Well, why is it called a stamp tax? It says it is because of historical reasons, but it is mainly a credit tax. What does it do? Well, if you typically do a consumer loan, your mortgage, or a credit card loan, um, any of those are subject to this tax. So 1.2% is a pretty heavy uh, tax. We reduce it to half, 0.6%. Would we like to uh, eliminate this tax? Of course, but then we need to raise revenue as well. You know, there, so we'd like to take a look at the overall tax situation. 0.6, you know, just to give you an idea, uh, this, is, uh, this is a pretty significant part of, um, you know, I mean, not, not a huge part, but uh, it's not insignificant in terms of government revenue it raises. What did we do to finance reconstruction? This is when, well. The, we had a balanced financing plan, which is uh, key to avoiding undesirable macroeconomic effects on three variables: inflation, exchange rate, and interest rate. Let me give you a clear example. We needed to finance the government needed to finance 8.4 billion dollars. What did we do? We had a sovereign fund. We could have used the sovereign fund, sell the dollars, but that would have depressed, you know, appreciated depressed meaning going down, appreciated our exchange rate, creating problems for our export sector. We wanted to do a balance. We have to sell dollars, yes, 
but we raise taxes. And this is, we are a, a, a center-right government, <coughs> and many people were surprised that a center-right government will raise taxes, you know, to finance reconstruction. And we were criticized by doing that, saying that investment would stop. It didn't stop, actually, it's growing by 20%. So uh, the first thing is doing well, a little bit of taxes, a little bit of indebtedness, some dollar uh, sales of dollars, and also the revenue that comes from growth. Um, Moody's upgraded Chile's government bond ratings from A1 to AA3 in June 2010, quoting exactly, and I'm, I'm quoting here from the Moody's statement in June 7, 16 last year, saying that you know one of the things that the new administration has chosen to rely mainly on a combination of taxation and new debt issuance and keep most of the fiscal saving for future use. Had we used the sovereign fund to finance reconstruction. First of all, a sovereign fund is not supposed to finance reconstruction, it's supposed to weather financial crisis, and that is the reason that it was uh, you know, um, implemented. But then second, if you use the fund, then you have no fund, and you have a crisis, then you have nowhere to go. So we didn't want to use the fund, we wanted to use it minimally. We placed, and this is in, 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 in another, High point for us because uh, we placed sovereign bonds last year, $1.5 billion, and the $1 billion, we placed two bonds. The $1 billion bond, the 10 year bond, we had the lowest interest rate in Chile's history, I'll show you in a minute. And it was the first issuance of a peso global bond in Chile's history. We issued a bond in the, in the foreign markets in our own currency, you know, which is different because then the exchange rate risk is not assumed by the debtor, but is assumed by the creditor. The creditor assumes the exchange risk. So if and we placed a 10-year peso bond on nominal in, at nominal interest rate, not at inflation-protected interest rate. So that meant that foreign investors were confident on Chile, not only now, but for 10 years, because they were going to you know, hold a, an instrument that would um, require payments for 10 years. So. This is part of our process, which we're doing right now, financial integration and internationalization of the Chilean peso. And after we did this, many Chilean companies got uh, abroad and obtained financing in dollars and pesos. Part of what we did was to set a benchmark for Chilean companies. The Chilean uh, sovereign had been out of the market since 2004 and went back in 2010. When, and this is another interesting, as a, as a former researcher, um, we we studied this at the Ministry of Finance, all the issuance of government debt since 1822. And 1822 was the first government bond issued by the newly uh, formed Republic of Chile. And it was placed in London at a rate of 9.9%. So from 9.9 to 3.89, this is the lowest rate that we got last year. Let me very briefly talk about what we do in terms of promoting productivity. Well, we're trying to improve the human resources in the state. We're trying to attract talent to the state. I mean, people who are the talented students that go out would like to um, maybe attract some of those into the state. Before, I mean, who knows? Maybe an LSE graduate would like to get a job in the Chilean government. We'll be happy to uh, get your applications. Uh, but. We're doing this at two levels, the general public service and the upper levels of the public service. So the, you know, the heads of services 
the heads of public services are chosen in Chile uh, by a process of headhunting. You know, uh, so they are uh, headhunting. Uh, develops a short list, and that short list is then presented to the president, you know, for the higher services, and then the president of the republic chooses, but within a short list that comes from an independent and autonomous body. Uh, we're doing uh, something that, uh, you know, enhanced management of the state. What are we doing here? There's a new management unit at the uh, Ministry of Finance with quantitative targets and deadlines. And let me tell you what this management unit does. We are monitoring five different indicators, labor absenteeism, the use of overtime pay, the recovery of sick licenses, the delay in payments to government suppliers, and there's a new Chile Paga scheme. We have a Chile Compra. Chile Compra is a program in which we buy through an internet platform, you know, where every supplier can, uh, can apply and see and, and try to sell their products. In, uh, we are, we're going to implement this to reduce the lag of payment to our suppliers. In terms of the other indicators, um, we have discovered that many services in Chile uh, use, for example, labor absenteeism is, is double in the public sector than it is in the private sector. But some services within the public sector have the same labor absenteeism than the, private, the average of the private sector. So there is a wide variance, and we're working with the different services and the different undersecretaries to try to uh, you know, improve on this. Um, breach of statutory deadlines. There's some, you know, administrative deadlines that some services are, you know, break and others comply with. So we'd like to also improve on this one. Um, each undersecretary, undersecretary uh, is responsible uh, to take concrete steps and improve performance in these five indicators. And we are monitoring in the Ministry of Finance. We're monitoring these indicators, uh, you know, um, regularly. Let me, uh, one other thing that we're doing, and let me invite you. We have here um, a web address. You can go there, and when you go in, they say, do you have an idea on how you can help us improve the quality of our state? Please go in. You can do it and send a message anonymously, or you can provide your email address. We are invited, inviting all public servants in Chile to help us and to provide us with ideas. We're inviting citizens in general to use the, this web page and to participate. And we also, if some of you have some ideas, you're also welcome to go in, httpestadoeficiente.hacienda.cl, and offer us what ideas you have so we can improve the management of the state. We took this idea. I, we adapted this idea. We really, it's not our idea completely original. We adapted from the spending challenge that the UK government put to its citizens. So it is also appropriate to recognize that this spending challenge, where many people contributed with ideas on how to improve the management of resources in the state, where well, we're applying this concept in Chile as well, to uh, provide for people to participate in this. We have a Capital markets agenda, let me be very brief here. We have a, a bill in Congress to clarify the taxation and, taxation and derivatives. This is to uh, lure and um, you know, bring in companies, particularly small and medium-sized businesses, to cover the exchange risk. We have a floating exchange rate. Companies sell you know, and sell in one month, and then they get the proceeds in pesos. You sell in dollars, let's say, or in sterling pounds, and they get the proceeds you know, three months later. 
and they don't know how much they're going to get because they don't control the exchange rate, where if they get options or futures, and we are uh, doing two things, clarifying the tax situation and having an educational campaign with the Association of Banks to promote the use of these mechanisms, of these um, coverage mechanisms uh, for our companies. You have a financial system modernization bill in Congress right now. We're doing this. We are eliminating double taxation, particularly for middle class saving in, through, through the pension system. And uh, we're also uh, eliminate, reducing significantly the cost of insurance for mortgages, which uh, you know, we are having the banks, they need to auction the insurance uh, because we have, we have discovered that the cost of insurance is extremely high in mortgage. So in this way, it will be a more competitive and transparent market. The next step, we are creating a financial stability board. There will be a board with three superintendents, superintendents of banks, the head of the Security and Exchange Commission, the head of the pension uh, superintendency, the president of the central bank, and the minister of finance. What is the idea? To look at systemic risk and to try to prevent systemic risk and to better coordinate the different regulators in the economy. Some, some countries have done this idea of the Financial Stability Board. We have a new Securities Commission. We have now a, a superintendency, and which is a, headed by one person, nominated by the President of the Republic. We want to have you know, a collegiate, uh, a collegiate uh, body of five people who are uh, and with more autonomy. This is one another thing that we're doing. We are working on commercial information to consolidate the debt. We don't have information about certain types of debt in the economy, so we'd like that debt to also uh, be there, not only negative but positive debt. We will have a single law of funds. We have different types of funds, investment funds, mutual funds, and so on, and there are four different types of laws that we'd like to create a unified law. What is the idea here? To create more competition so that in the end, the people who are the users of the services get a better return and uh, are, are, it, we become more attractive, these kind of instruments. We another project, we space supervision for the insurance sector. Tax incentives for R&D. Well, one of the things that we are really keen on is promoting R&D. We have a current tax credit uh, of 35% on uh, expenditure on R&D, we call this extramural because, and this was established in 2008, because this is a law that allows you to get a credit, a tax credit, if you do a contract with an outside institution. But we know from experience that a lot of the uh, R&D that is done is done within the company. So we are uh, spreading this benefit, we are uh, going with this benefit not only for investment that is done and contracted outside the company, but also for R&D that is done inside the company. We have, we have this bill in contract in, in, in Congress right now. We are creating now a single window for foreign trade. Let me explain what this is. There, is, there are a number of institutions that are involved in a single trade operation just a trade operation, an export operation. We have up to 19 public institutions involved in one operation. So what we'd like to do is to uh, reduce this. In a single window, you go you know, virtually and you can register your trade operation and reduce from the current 21 days that we use in, on average for a foreign trade operation to just 10 days. 10 days is the OECD standard. That's why we're setting that. Well, let, I'm... I'll just finish with a few remarks. Where are we right now? Well, I said we are in the $15,000 range, and 
some people call this at PVP the, the 15,000 per capita trap. Why is this? Because there are very few countries that are between 15,000 and 22,000, which is really the, the start of where you can say, can we become a developed nation? This is what we're working on right now. Can we, uh, can we go over the, you know, the, the current status of being underdeveloped and you know, in this way create a better, a better society for our people? Yes, we think we can, but it's a tough thing. There are many countries with incomes, you know, between five and ten thousand dollars. There are many countries also between ten and fifteen. Very few between fifteen and twenty-two. You know, so something happens in this trap that either you go up or you're derailed. You know, and this is something that we are looking at right now in the way that I've said we're looking on investment, on productivity, and also, well, this is a way to show you where we are in terms of uh, in current. In cur at current exchange rates, we are $12,000. So, where are we going? What are our goals? One of our goals is to grow at 6% average annual rate, and you will see this in a moment. We have grown at more than 6%, but for a little over a year, we need to uh, get into this growth as a more permanent thing. Our, uh, this was also part of the campaign. We said we will create, we'll create 200,000 jobs annually we created on the first year, we exceeded, largely exceeded this target because we created 486,000 jobs, and we said 200,000 jobs. But we won't be, keep creating four, half a million jobs per year. It's impossible to keep employment creation at 6.5% per year increase. So we will stick to these uh, goals, increasing investment from 21 to 28% of GDP in 2014, and eliminating extreme poverty by 2014. By extreme poverty, we mean those who applying all their income only to nutrition, they don't get enough uh, uh, income to buy the minimum basket, you know, a minimum nutrition basket. So this is what we call indigents or extremely poor. Our goal is to eliminate this by 2014. Uh, we also want to lay the ground to become a developed country by 2018. And let me show you now how what the difference it makes if we grow at 6%, we started in 2009 with $14,289 per capita. If we grow at 6% per year, we can reach 22,000 per capita, which is the, the, the starting point of development by 2018. Uh, 2018 is a special year. It is the year that we commemorate the bicentenary of our independence in the true sense of independence when the modern state, the, when the newly independent state started and continued without interruption because in 2010 we had our first, you know, independent a junta, uh, the junta or government uh, that, you know, replaced the Spanish but it was in allegiance to the king, not as a independent autonomous movement. So in a way we commemorate both uh, dates. In 2018, we had our permanent independence. So, in, sorry, in uh, 18, 1818. So, 2018 is 200 years. If in 200 years from that, in the bicentenary, we can live under development and become a developed nation, it's a, it's, a, it's a goal that will be for us. And we can, at the same time, eliminate poverty. We will fight on both grounds development, growth, and poverty. Um, but what happens if we grow? 
at 3%, it will take 10 more years. You know? So it's a full decade. You know, the difference between 6 and 3% growth is really a decade for our population. We don't want to become developed because, because we want to be in the, in the books or in the ranks. Development is the way to give a better life for people, to give a better life for our citizens, to eliminate poverty, and to, uh, you know, maybe also to uh, get some more time. The, we, we Chileans are very hard workers. Maybe we can get some extra time to spend with our families and, and activities different from work. So let me say this is a tough thing. This, some of you may recognize this. This was the miners' rescue, the 33 miners which were rescued uh, you know, um, last year, after being for many days uh, inside the ground. Uh, and I know that what we have in front of us is a tough challenge. We are ready for the challenge. We hope that, uh, that we can succeed and we can maintain the course. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Minister. Um, we can now open the floor. I will uh, take a round of three, four questions. Please identify yourself and keep the question short so we can have a few rounds. Yes, you at the back. Thank you. Congratulations for the presentation. Uh, my name is Juan Pablo. I'm a student here at the LSE at the Government Department. And Felipe, my questions inspire for the last slide. You talk about the regulatory quality, and in the last 10 months, we have two so-called accidents of regulation, of lack of observation of the Serna Geomin in the case of the miners in the north of Chile, and maybe a lack of observation or something else in the case of La Polar. If we can call them accidents, what do you think we can do in order to prevent those accidents in the future? Thank you. My name is Sebastian from Paraguay. I am also a master's student here at LSE. My question is about the monetary policy of the Chilean government currently, because this year was a little confused. Uh, usually the Chilean peso was a very stable currency but this year suffered a depreciation of 5%, I guess. And I, know, I want to know if this is a policy of the Chilean government just for a pressure of the foreign sector, or was just a, a, a direct situation for the crisis? Hi, uh, Minister. Uh, I would like to know, uh, you paint a beautiful scenario and panorama of how the things look right now. Um, in the face of that, I would like to know uh, why, if it's appearing on the news, um, the crisis of Chilean education, are you not talking about that? Excuse me? <laughs> the Chilean education oh, system? Chilean education. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. And also, you talk about taxes, but you don't talk about a rise on the minimum wage. That's what I would like to know. Um, okay, we'll have a second round if you want to answer this. 
Sure. Uh, let me go first to um, Juan Paolo's questions. And you said, are these two accidents? I said, one is an accident and one is not. Serna Hyomin, well, for some of you who will not know, um, the miners, uh, the situation of the miners was uh, a, a clear accident. Although, of course, you can say that the company uh, in which it was a medium-sized uh, company where they worked did not have uh, completely, uh, you know, the, the, the security standards of the company were not uh, uh, up to what they should have been. So, um, in spite of that, they did have some security uh, inside the ground because the miners were able to resist for, you know, I think it was 17 days or something or 16 days inside. You know, and the companies are, uh, you know, they, they had kind of a refugee for them to resist this kind of. So, uh, there were, uh, the company, you know, did not perform adequately. The government went in from the very first moment and we said we would improve security standards. We will be also, uh, no, no, we have set a commission to uh, look at security standards, labor security standards, and also uh, to, um, you know, apply the standards and, and control them. And we have, in fact, as, um, you know, this is an issue of the Ministry of Mining, but since the, the, when they need money, they come to the Ministry of Finance for the funding, you know, uh, we are providing additional funding so that the, this unit that controls, um, you know, security standards in uh, mining companies have more resources and can contract more people. So that was an accident. Uh, we are uh, looking at, uh, you know, ways to improve security standards. But accidents, sometimes you say, well, can they be prevented? Sometimes they can, sometimes not. The second is not an accident. La Polar, some of you may have heard, La Polar is a company that um, you know, suffered very significant losses because it's not, a, it's not an accident saying it's a fraud. It's just plain fraud. Fraud happened uh, in the best uh, uh, run economies. And here in the UK, you know too about fraud because oh, the US, the UK, Germany, the, you all have cases of fraud. And La Polar was a case of fraud in two different senses. In the sense that first, it has been the, the company itself said that they falsified information. So they provided false information to the authorities on the markets. And that is a legal offense in Chile, punished by jail. Uh, uh, jail, not Yale. Uh, they uh, make that clear. So, you know, the government has uh, presented all the evidence it has to the judiciary, and the judiciary will pursue the responsibilities. And the government, by itself, the Security and Exchange Commission, uh, is studying the use of privileged information because one thing is providing false information, the other thing is using uh, privileged information, which is also a legal offense. So, in that sense, this is not an accident, it's a fraud. I don't think a problem is with our regulation, although we're doing many things. Some of the things I described in my presentation are directed to improve our financial regulations. And these were done and announced in Chile way before the scandal of La Polar happened. So, uh, Sebastian, you asked about monetary policy, uh, depreciation, and, and uh, you know, we have an independent central bank uh, in Chile. We have an autonomous central bank, and central bank authorities are, you know, they have to be confirmed by Congress. There was a process in which uh, they are appointed and removed. The, the, the executive power, power cannot just remove. The, the process of removing one of these authorities is very cumbersome and has to be done through Congress. So, you know, so it's a truly independent institution. Although, of course, central bank 
which manages monetary policy and the government through the Ministry of Finance, they coordinate and cooperate. And I sit, as a Minister of Finance, I sit in the meetings of the Central Bank, although I don't have a vote, but in some certain occasions I can veto, you know, I haven't exercised the veto. Veto is a very strong action to exercise. What have we done together? Together, uh, I have participated in some of these decisions, although they have taken autonomously. The central bank started to intervene in the markets uh, in the beginning of this year. It, it, let me just point out that it is an issue that not only happens in Chile. It, some countries fight depreciation because that is a problem, and, and people want to run away from their economy, so the currencies depreciate. Well, some other countries have the opposite situation, that we're fighting appreciation because a lot of capital wants to come into the country. Why is this? Partly because you have a very loose monetary policy in this industrialized world, particularly in the United States with quantitative easing. Not only the interest rate is between 0 and 0 0.25, but also you have uh, quantitative easing in excess of $1.5 trillion if you put all the packages together. And the last package just is finishing June 30. You know, the last round of $600 billion put into the market. So what happens when you put all the liquidity in the market? And then, you know, well, those, those dollars will be chasing assets outside the U.S. You know, and then they go, where do they go? They go to Australia, they go to Canada, they go to Brazil. They go to, in a minimal part, we're a small country, to Chile, Peru, Colombia. You know, and all these economies are suffering the appreciation, are suffering capital inflows. And you say, well, it's good that you have capital inflows, but then you have, how do you resist the pressures on appreciation? And then we are, why do we, are we concerned about appreciation? Because it puts a very heavy strain on our export sector. And we'd like to have a diversified export base. If we are not concerned about appreciation, then, uh, you know, at a certain exchange rate, we may have a very a booming mining industry, but a very complicated industry in agriculture, which are other tradable sectors. So that's why we are, uh, uh, we, as in the government, we're doing a number of things. Among them, you know, a responsible fiscal policy, a growth rate of government spending, which is below the growth rate of GDP. Uh, in that way, we help uh, to avoid appreciation, and we're doing some other things, which is the WASO bonds. The WASO bonds is uh, bonds that uh, companies, we have just created a new regulation which companies based in Latin America, emerging world in general, can come and issue, the, do their bonds in Chile, raise money in pesos and get out in dollars. And, well, that's a good thing for the market, but also helps the exchange rate. Um, let me, the, the last question was about, yes, Chilean education, sure. There is, a, there is unrest in education in Chile, and I won't uh, you know, deny it if you ask it. Uh, I'm painting all what I'm saying, this is a beautiful scenario. Well, in fact, these are facts, what I told. It's a true scenario. But of course, we are not uh, immune to um, some uh, social uh, uh, demonstrations, and this is something that is happening in Chile, and you can look at that. And, on my view, this is part of what we have right now. With, when I mentioned this $15,000 trap, the per capita trap, it means that partially people feel that we have reached a level of income where we deserve a, a lot of things to happen, you know, and we're looking to have more and more, uh, you know, obligations with, from the state with us and with the citizens and where are the duties. And sometimes this is what happens. There's some of these demands which are reasonable, sensible, and we are talking to the students 
but of course there are you know some of the demands which which uh, we don't agree and this is a normal process in a democracy the demonstrations proceed we talk to the people and so on so uh, that would be my answer to that question okay so um, yep you here uh, my name is Jorge. I'm a LSE student from Chile as well. Um, I would like to know, Minister, what's the government doing uh, to tackle the, the Gini coefficient, which is probably the worst indicator of Chilean economy? Yeah. The lady at the back who is standing. Hi. Hi, my name is Mel Muñoz. I'm Chilean. I'm coming from Express Media International newspaper. Just uh, my question is uh, for the main behind minister. Could you live a Chilean with 180 Chilean pesos? And here at the front. My name is Armin. I'm from University of Bristol. My question is regarding uh, recent McKinsey report uh, said that the Chilean financial system is the strongest and deepest in Latin America. What are the three reforms that you think that most important to straightening financial system of a country, in particular capital market? You mean in Chile or outside? Chile. In Chile. Okay. Okay, the, the, uh, first on the issue of um, inequality, we're doing a number of things. One thing is, uh, as you know, and from past research, uh, first of all, the country that grows, uh, growing economy in the end, and this is, you look at the genius of the developed nations and you will discover that the inequality among developed countries is much lower than inequality in developing countries. So. In time, on, on time, as the country develops, inequality will be reduced. And, but this is something that happens, you know, naturally, uh, because economies uh, that grow, uh, the scarce factor becomes labor, so real wages go up, and uh, you know, and the cost of capital reduces, is reduced, and, and you, this is a standard process of, uh, you know, um, inequality and and, and and growth. But we wouldn't just rely on this. We need to do other things. Uh, inequality, income inequality, in a way, what it does is reproduces the inequality of education in the, in the, in the country. So if we have education distributed unevenly, you will have in, uh, income distributed unevenly. So we're working on that in improving the quality of our education, training also, training for workers. Education is a more longer-term thing. <clears throat> if you improve education, then incomes will increase, but sometime later. In um, training programs, we believe a lot in training, uh, training in outside and on-the-job training, and we will uh, redesign training programs, and also we will put more resources into training. We have uh, one other thing which is called the ingreso ético familiar, which is a kind of a minimum family income that we uh, are, uh, you know, our objective is to achieve for all families. So this is basically a program of conditional subsidies. And it's a program that will take the less, I mean, the poorest people in the country 
and will give them income, you know, a subsidy. But not a subsidy if you stay at home and do nothing. Saying, okay, in order to receive the subsidy, you have to send your children to school first. Second, you need to have your vaccine program for your children and your health checks, uh, uh, you know, updated. You need also to, uh, you know, do some other things like, well, look actively for a job. If you don't have a job, you have to look actively for a job. And this is a third condition. So that's why I call this conditional subsidies. Conditional on what? Conditional on effort. And uh, this is uh, another thing that we're doing. And we, we are, this is a pilot program right now, but it's uh, getting to this year to 450,000 Chileans who are the poorest of the poor. You know, and trying to improve their condition. The third thing uh, is, um, you know, you asked about the when you said 180 Chilean pesos. I thought you were referring to the minimum wage. Uh, that's probably what you're referring to, and it's not 180 because nobody can do anything with 180. It's 180,000 Chilean pesos. You know, and that is about uh, 300 and let me see, um, 370 Chilean. Uh, I'm sorry, U.S. dollars per month. That is about the, the level of the minimum wage. Well, first of all, the, we are in the middle of the discussion of the minimum wage right now. Uh, we are proposing an increase of not 180,000, but 181.5, which means 5.5% increase in the minimum wage, which is a 2.2% real terms above inflation. Let me be very clear here. I would love to have doubled the minimum wage, but that wouldn't be responsible. And the reason for this is that the people who suffer the consequences of very high minimum wage are those who don't have training, who are the young, very young. You know, the average unemployment rate in Chile is 7%. Among the 15 to 19-year-olds, it's 18.5%. It is them who have a problem because they don't have the uh, abilities, because they lack the training. So we'd like to... Some people think that the minimum wage is the only way to improve income, and it is not. It is a way that certainly we can improve income, and we're not, we, that's why we believe in the minimum wage, and we are increasing the minimum wage, but we have many other ways in which the, the income of the poor, I just described the ingreso etico familiar, which is one uh, thing and one important policy. And we have many other subsidies that are given to poor families. So careful because the minimum wage ha does have an effect on unemployment. And reforms on the Chile's financial system, I would say financial stability board, I think that is a very important one. I would say the, uh, this new Security and Exchange Commission and the, uh, uh, the consolidated information so that we get credit information from people from all sources. Okay, um, the gentleman at the back there, on the left. Thank you. Uh, you say that uh, consumption has been growing at uh, higher than 10% and GDP about 6% over the last uh, 18 months. So that growth in Chile is underpinned by the consumption. Uh, so if we want to uh, remain to achieving 6% GDP growth, probably we need to uh, have more investment. Could you elaborate more your ideas on investments? Uh, here we had in Europe, uh, in one of the, the most successful economies, Germany, uh, the visit of the uh, Chinese premier. And uh, uh, despite the fact that uh, Germany has very good growth, uh, they're talking about investment uh, uh, joint projects. Uh, Chile has been very successful in trade agreements. 
And wouldn't it be right to also think about investment agreements with some uh, leading economies and uh, good partners? Um, here at the front. Do you think that globalization will help Chile's development or not? Um, we have one last question there at the left. Uh, hi, given that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, over 25% of your export is to China, and also more than 50% of your export is in copper, how worried are you about a slowdown in the Chinese uh, demand, uh, and how robust do you think your economy is if that happens? And do you think the 6% will be achieved in that case? Thank you. Yeah. Um, there, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Felipe. Sebastián Ramón from FSA. Um, I was, uh, well, thanks very much for the, the presentation. It was really uh, interesting and, and fun. Um, I was wondering about uh, what is the balance between uh, the export sector and other sectors such as education that have, have been already mentioned? Uh, in, the, in the discussion that is making the government to lean towards when it comes, for example, to think about using uh, sovereign funds to raise some govern government funds to uh, ensure that, it, that, that there are no uh, effects on exchange rates uh, and, and prefer that avenue rather than perhaps uh, allow the government to, to implement more social policies or perhaps uh, long-term education policies and so on. Thanks again. Okay. Okay. Um, on the question of uh, consumption and investment, consumption is growing at slightly over 10%, but investment is growing at, at close to 20 so the, uh, there's about double the growth rate. So in that sense, I think this is healthy. The other thing that we're seeing now is a um, deceleration of consumption, and that will happen into the, is already on the figures that were released yesterday, you know, particularly on the retail trade, which has uh, decelerated significantly. So that's a good sign. Uh, consumption needed to, uh, part of this consumption is uh, durable consumption. And uh, you know it reflects better prospects for the economy. And now we have a high base. I think that it's a very it's good that it happened. But I'm also I always worry that we don't have a we don't get a consumption boom. We better have an investment boom with solid consumption behind. And this is what's happening on investment agreements. We have I I think I mentioned that we had 49 investment protection and. Uh, and investment agreements with 49 countries. So that is an area of uh, high interest to us. And we're trying, and we're getting very solid foreign direct investment into our economy. Is globalization good and, or good or bad? Um, uh, I think in the whole, globalization helps Chile. Uh, Chile is a very, is an economy highly integrated into the world economy. Uh, if for a small open economy like us, the world is our market. And uh, you know we have this highly diversified uh, export base in terms of customers, not so in terms of uh, products. So I think that overall it proves to be a good thing. Of course, you should be aware that globalization also has problems. 
and also has some uh, big challenges. And sometimes uh, it's good to have access to world markets, but sometimes the world markets you know, will uh, produce a financial crisis and you will import the crisis into your economy. So you need to have the institutions to deal with that. And uh, having a counter-cyclical fiscal policy as we do is a very, I think, is a very important part of it, uh, that we are able to smooth the cycle, not just spend whatever we get in, but to be able to, uh, uh, in the good times, we save, and we desave in the bad times. And that is a way to smooth the cycle. And if we get a sovereign fund, a sovereign fund is a way uh, in which we can be prepared at the time the globalization goes in the opposite direction, in the, in the direction of a slowdown or a, or a financial crisis. Um, on the slowdown in China, we of course, with 25% of our exports going to China, and with China being such an important uh, determinant of the price of copper, we are of course following very closely what happens in China. It is our our view that uh, China will uh, is in a process of deceleration, but probably a smooth deceleration. And um, you know, we have no signs that it will become abrupt or you know, a sudden stop in China will, of course, have immediate effects in the market. In China also has a, you know, a very significant challenge, which is how they turn their growth uh, phase from being based on investment and exports to being more based on consumption. You know that the Chinese consumption uh, rate, China consumes less than 40% of output. In, an, in, in any economy, consumption is up, you know, 70% of uh, GDP. So uh, in, in, in China, it's basically, it's a uh, growth model based on investment and exports, and they need to recalibrate the model and move more into this huge local market in a way the U.S. did a long time ago, which is relying more on the domestic market. With the prospects of uh, China uh, growing not only for the last 30 years that it has done, but uh, with continued growth and the mass migration from the um, agricultural lands and the inlands uh, to uh, the towns, there will be a very significant demand for raw materials and natural resources to build these huge towns. And so, you know, the prospects for copper and natural resources I see strong, maybe not at the heights that we've seen recently, you know, in recent months, but still very strong. The sort of... Uh, Last question, the sort of uh, you know, trade-off that was mentioned between social policies and growth, promoting the social... I think in the end, uh, there is no trade-off, really, because unsustainable social policies have to be based on a solid economy, on a responsible economy, and one... Suppose you say, okay, now I'm going to spend because I have $14 billion dollars in, the, in our uh, sovereign fund, and I want to spend, you know, that, uh, well, uh, you can spend once and then you have no fund and then the next crisis can catch in and then your exchange rate will appreciate and you'll get a problem with all our, your tradable sector, not only the exports, but those who are competing against imports and you're going to get an employment problem. So you need to make a balance. You, it's not just saying growth, it's saying social policies and growth, we need to take care of both. It can be done with a responsible budget, increasing social uh, government spending, having, as we do, we have more than two-thirds of our budget, which is now in excess of $55 billion, going to social policies, the social sectors. And I think this is a, that's a pretty high uh, uh, average level of uh, and, and distribution 
towards the social sector. So yes, we are uh, we are very concerned about uh, you know having and it's a delicate balance, and that's why growth and development is so fascinating and it's so difficult at the same time because you have to balance these things. You know, if leaning on one, on the other hand, we wouldn't lean on the other. You know, and just saying, it's all growth and let growth take care of everything. No, we're doing many things. We are, uh, for example, we have just uh, announced uh, that we will eliminate the 7% uh, contribution towards health you know, of the poorest 60% of Chilean people at a cost on a regime when, when we reach uh, uh, you know, sort of the cruise uh, of this uh, it will be about over $200 million per year. So we are doing many things on social policies, but at the same time, we have to keep the economy growing. Um, I know that there are um, many more questions that we would like to ask, but um, we have run out of time. So I think the only thing that remains is to thank the minister for his presentation and his uh, answers and give him a good round of applause.